You're listening to Never Sleeps Network. Hey guys, Aaron Broverman here just to tell you about our sponsor, Harry Tarantula. Harry Tarantula is our original sponsor. They're the OG sponsor. They were here in the very beginning when we were just a fledgling comic book show done out of some guy's bedroom. But they have some amazing product for you. Just go down to their store at 3456 Young Street and you can get your role-playing games. You can get your comic books, of course. You can get your tabletop games. They have everything. We got Pokemon cards. We've got Star Wars miniatures. They just have everything that you could possibly want. Plus, Leon, their owner, is an amazing dude. He uh, He's very honest and uh, he'll get you everything you need. And uh, they have an amazing new space there at 3456 Young Street. So you got to go down. You got to check out their merchandise. Sometimes they have weekly live role-playing games, some Magic the Gathering stuff. They're doing championships all the time. You've probably seen a lot of their stuff on our social media because we try to promote them any way we can because without them we wouldn't be able to put this podcast together for you so please if you're local to Toronto and even if you're not look them up at www.harryt.com and uh, check them out at 3456 Young Street and tell them Aaron sent you This episode is brought to you by Sequential, the Canadian independent comic book magazine. For those of you in the comic book scene in Canada, you know Sequential was founded by Saul Good Sam. Well, he's teamed up with editor Brendan Montgomery of the Canadian Comic Books Wiki to bring you this new digital magazine, Sequential Digital Magazine. It's a free quarterly magazine bringing you closer to the amazing Canadian talent who make their own comics in Canada with reviews, interviews, articles. There's something for everyone. In the opening issue, they've got an interview with Credible Threat Press, one of the best independent publishers on the scene, and they're giving out their awards for uh, best independent comics from the Canadian Comics Wiki. If you got a message from Brendan to vote, this is where you'll see the results of their of their awards, including best comic book podcast, of which Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network is nominated. So hopefully we won, but uh, the only way to find out is to find their debut issue now at sequentialmagazine.ca and follow can comics wiki that's c-a-n-c-o-m-i-c-s wiki on twitter and instagram and check out the new sequential digital magazine edited by brendan montgomery founder of the canadian independent comic book wiki You're listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. Here's your host, Aaron Broverman. Godspeed, old chum. Hey, fan people. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. We're on Never Sleeps Network at neversleepsnetwork.com or wherever you get your podcast needs met. 
including iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and whatever your favorite podcatcher is. Uh, I want to remind you that if you want to review our show on any of those uh, platforms that I mentioned, I will send you a free comic from my personal collection. And all you have to do is leave us a review and then DM me at SpeechBubblePod on Twitter or Facebook, and uh, I'll get your address and send you that comic right away. So today, we have a very special guest. He is the president of the Association of Canadian Cartoonists. Uh, We met in kind of a odd way. I was doing a little bit of research for the podcast. One of our former guests, Chip Zdarsky, had just wrapped up uh, his run on uh, Peter Parker's Spider-Man, and him and artist Adam Kubert, who worked together on that book, were doing a talk at the ROM because the savvy people over at the ROM thought that they would tie their recent spiders exhibit, we're talking actual spiders, arachnids, your eight-legged friends, with Spider-Man. And so they wanted to do a panel once they found out that Chip was from Toronto and Adam was only a short flight from New York. They wanted to do a panel talking about Spider-Man. It was like called Spider-Man Legend and Legacy. And the moderator at this great event is our next guest. His name is Wes Tyrell. Wes has been an editorial cartoonist for about 30 magazines and newspapers across Canada. His works appeared in Maclean's, the Toronto Star, the Globe and Mail. He was the regular editorial cartoonist for Yahoo Canada until 2016. Uh, He's currently working on a graphic novel called Fidel and I, about his time uh, living in Cuba. So look out for that. He's got a number of books, including some children's books, Who Farted, Stories in Verse for Big and Little Kids, Neil Crone by Neil Crone with art by Wes Tyrell. Uh, My Dad is an Elevator. Wow, I bet he goes up and down. Uh, I Met an Elk in Edson once, The Farmer's Secret Midnight Dance, Uh, also by Neil Crone, and uh, his latest one is Keep Your Eye on the Puck. That should be coming out very, very soon. He's also doing a picture book for adults called Sex in a Snowbank, which is coming out in fall 2019, and that's about, you know, Canadians and their relationship with sex and uh, the sexual mores of the Canadian people. Uh, We'll be talking to him about how that's different from our American counterparts uh, south of the border. Anyway, Wes, thank you so much for coming. All right, Aaron. Great to be here. This is a wonderful time. I remember when we met, I I came up to you and you were wearing one of these crazy suits with like (laughs) zap, pow, bang all over. And uh, it's the type of suit, you know, from Opposites. So I guess Opposites attract because I came right over and introduced myself and told you're you about you're the podcast. A smart, you're a smart and astute you man. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. The, uh, I, I, I think they should be sending me uh, free suits, Aaron, because I've been wearing Opposites for a few years now. And that was, the, uh, that was my Pac-Man suit. 
and very exciting to put that on because, uh, you know, people just want to play games with you and run their fingers across your chest. So that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. So we're going to talk about your relationship with comic books and mm-hmm. graphic novels and stuff to start. So what was your childhood like? How did you first get exposed to comics? Where were you? Where well, did you grow up? Well, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, a Scottish kid, in, uh, but born in, in Canada, and uh, I got an identical twin who's uh, also in the creative world. He's a musician and a filmmaker. And uh, we grew up uh, with a really groovy grandma who would take us down on Young Street as kids, and this would be in the 1970s, and take us into the head shops. And she just thought, oh, the people are really nice and they're nice young men with long hair in there and they'll just chat with my grandchildren and it's going to be wonderful. And then we would promptly look over at the stacks of fabulous furry Freak Brother uh, comic books and Robert Crumb comic books and my grandma would buy them all for us. And also enormous collections of uh, all the various Playboy cartoonists at the time. And, uh, and we'd be like seven or eight years old ingesting this stuff. So we developed an appetite for underground stuff. At the same time, like every kid, we were massive comic book consumers uh, from all the goofy stuff, the Archie and Richie Rich things when you're really little, and moving into the, uh, the TV spoofs of things like Star Trek, uh, uh, comic book versions of, at the time. And then of course, dealing with the battles of, are you a DC guy? Are you a Marvel guy? Or are you, or are you into, you know, eerie and creepy comic books? Like the horror genre was really popular in our house, probably more so than, uh, superhero comics. We, we, inge- we were horror maniacs and we really ingested as much horror as we could get our hands on. It's really interesting. Cause it seems like you, you kind of went in backwards. Normally people get exposed to superheroes first and then they find the underground cartoonist. It's true. But you did the reverse. You found the underground cartoonist first and then went to the superheroes and other things like that. Yeah. So. I, I think it's completely true. And there's, uh, there's some kind of connection with the freedom that at the time that parents were giving their kids to, uh, it never raised eyebrows with my folks that we were reading stuff that w- it was massively about, you know, underground ideas, people with, you know, huge, uh, drug habits and, and sexual misconduct, uh, splashed across the pages, which we thought this is the greatest stuff ever. And my parents like, Oh, that's nice. And we would get, you know, kind of like my parents are letting us get away with this. This is really cool. Wow. Super progressive parents. What did they, what did they do? They were, uh, yeah. My dad was a real blue collar, uh, uh, machinery moving dude, but, uh, they were also involved in charities and they work for, uh, or not work. They belong to these organizations like the, the Kinsman club and things like this. So from a very early age, all they had had us doing was participating in charitable events. Like my dad, uh, uh, amazingly because of this organization would, uh, they would sponsor things like the garden brothers circus down at Maple Leaf gardens. So as kids, we'd get to go down to see the circus, but not just see the circus. My dad would be the, the MC guy, wow. uh, at, at, at the center ring. And tonight here comes, you know, the incredible, the John Zubini, the human cannonball. And then we'd get to go down afterwards and hang out with the human cannonball guy and go ride on the elephants and things like this. So yeah, our dad was a God when we were kids because of this. And, and it was all about, uh, 
participating uh, in the various communities and the hospitals, taking young people who had various disabilities down to these events, going to the exhibition, going to the the circus, going to the, the farmer's market, whatever it was. I, that reminds me of, you know, as a person with a disability myself, uh, there used to be the Shriners Circus. Sure. The Shriners Circus, yep. they always used to invite people, kids with disabilities down to the circus. Yep. Uh, yeah, that's awesome that your that your dad was involved in that. And as the announcer, I kind of know where you where you get it from being a moderator <laughs> and stuff mouth, like yeah. that. Right. You know what I mean? So, like, for you, what attracted you to comics and pop culture stuff? What was it about that kind of stuff that uh, really uh, you know turned your crank? So yeah, to speak? Well, I think like every young uh, male growing up in Toronto at that time, you were. You were either doing your, your your culture thing, which was your movies and your TV consumption, which would uh, certainly involve in our school a lot of heavy, heavy cartoon consumption, uh, early morning cartoons, I mean, and the associated comic book world that would go with that. Uh, uh, but uh, I think having the opportunity to draw at an early age, and I'm sure this might be a thread that you see uh, that's common with a lot of your, uh, the people that you interview that you, we were always the one person in the class who, right. who were, everybody was drawing, but we were, uh, you know, maybe at a, at a little bit of a different level than everybody else. And so you got a lot of attention as soon as you're in grade three and you're getting attention because you can you do faces of the teachers that look reasonable. Uh, you got a lot of excitement from that. When was the first time you were handed a piece of paper and like exposed to like, not only can you read about this stuff, but you can actually like do it, and draw your own stuff? Oh, uh, I'm sorry. At what age was yeah, I? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Do you remember? We, well, we had, we were lucky. We had a great teacher in uh, grade four and five named Bill Case, and he had us in uh, portables. And we, we, I had him for two years in a row. And his portable was considered this art wonderland. They called it, it's, it's, it's Bill Case's jungle. So we'd go out uh, every day to class in the jungle. And he insisted that every single day there was an inordinate amount of time devoted to art class. So every single person, he didn't believe that because you couldn't draw successfully that you shouldn't be a part of it. So one of his things that we did, and we would do it throughout the year, was we always had an ongoing comic book assignment. And everybody, you'd be in teams, you'd have five or six people and everybody would have to do these things. And, you know, I was lucky enough to know how to draw, you know, reasonably well for my age. And so I always got the, the lead assignment of whatever it was and everybody would get there. Okay. You color in the buildings or whatever. And I'd get to do the characters. Cause I, I really liked caricature from a very early age. And also from, I'm a political freak. So from an early age, I would be at easy access. There's five newspapers in the house, whatever. And you'd be going to the back page, like not just consuming the comic of the day, uh, for the strips like Beetle Bailey and whatever. Uh, but looking at who were doing the editorial cartoons. So that spilled into what I wanted to do at a very, very early age. And, and I was kind of determined that I would do that one day, but a lot of thanks goes to a teacher who said, uh, no, everybody should be allowed to draw. You That's know. awesome. Yeah. It's like the democratization of art. Kind of oh, thing. totally. And, and I mean, it's, uh, it's something that I try to practice now with young people or people my own age. I say, listen, every one of us was drawing 
at an early age. Every single person you knew, we all drew and we all painted. And then everyone, uh, you know, collectively would get to grade six or grade seven and go, oh, I'm not that good. I, you know, and the, the pressure of having to do a decent drawing would weigh on people and, and they'd stop doing it. Even the folks who really enjoy it. A lot of people go back late in life and go, wow, arts and crafts are really great. And they find an outlet for it. But I've, I've always felt our society would be much better off if people, if literally everyone was, was drawing or painting or sculpting or whatever it is. So when you were getting your comics from like those head shops and that sort of thing, like there wasn't much of a direct market. Like you didn't have comic shops in the same way that you sort of have them now. You certainly don't. So what was the comic scene like in Toronto in the 70s? Well, the great thing was that, you know, we all, all of us who loved comics didn't have to go far to get comics because every single variety or smoke shop on the corner all had a massive magazine selection. Every single store did. And I mean, like double, triple what they have now because the, all the titles would, uh, would be selling off for obvious reasons. So you would go to your, your local store. In my case, I had to go, uh, you know, I lived in North York and I'd go for a short bus ride and there would be the, every, I'd know when the release dates for anything was coming out and I would be at the store waiting for it. The difference with me is, I, um, not just ingesting American, uh, comics of a variety of titles, but I'm a Brit kid. So I would go to stores that would get British titles and I don't know how uh, familiar you are with, uh, with British comic scene for young people, but it continues to this day. There's the, these books that everybody's ingested, every single British kid, the Beano and the Dandy and the Beezer and Victor for boys and all these war titles, Warlord and all the, every week they'd get them. And then for Scottish kids like me, there's a national hero, a uh, comic hero called Urwoli. And Urwoli is this uh, wee kid uh uh, in, 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 in a, I'm not, I think it's a fictional, uh, city, but, uh, everybody identifies with him. And there's actually Uruwali statues, uh, uh, throughout the, the land in the way that we have those moose statues around, uh, Canada. Everyone likes that Uruwali. Oh, wow. I'm sure there's gonna be lots of people looking that up when, uh, I hope so. When they're listening. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. Because my, my exposure to British comics is like much later with 2000 AD and mm-hmm. Miracle Man or Marvel Man is one of my favorite cool. comics. Uh, Alan Moore, Neil Gaiman's reinterpretation. It's probably my favorite. Well, geez, story you know, it's funny time. you say that because when I, I lived as a young, my early 20s, I lived in London with a, a good pal who uh, was a, um, I'm not sure what his exact job was, but some sort of administration job uh, at this warehouse that was the main comic book distributor for all of Britain. And in that case, in London, it would go to this place, the Forbidden Planet, which was the, you know, the go-to joint for, for, for comics. Even I've heard of that. Yeah. And we would, he would come home with stat, like literally a hundred books in his briefcase every week. And we would just ingest every title you could think of. And the biggest thing I always remember was every, however many weeks till there was a next issue of Watchmen when it was brand new. And getting that latest Watchmen thing. And then until we had a complete, you know, finished book of Watchmen, but it was, it made more hours of, uh, of sitting around, uh, in pubs, uh, with, uh, with pints of uh, delicious uh, British beer to discuss the merits, uh, of that. It was just fantastic. And Watchmen was delayed quite a bit. So you, yeah. you, you had to wait some long time sometimes. Yeah. There was periods of time we were, what the hell's going on? You know, what, 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 the, what is that crazy Rorschach up to? <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. So you're, you're also. 
also like as a young person, you're in your art class with with Mr. Case, and and uh, you know you're one of the people that excels at drawing. When did you? decide, hey, I want to do this as a career. I want to do this when I grow up. Well, you know, it's funny because I, I never imagined that I was going to be doing anything else. other than I, we, Even though there, my twin and I both were big film heads, so we definitely felt that we would somehow be able to do that plus be involved in film. We could do film and we could do like be involved in comics and maybe stuff with monsters. And we were also absolutely convinced and we would send away for books to... Uh, so we could learn how to become monster makeup masters. Like we would watch all the great uh, universal films and think, man, I've got to become, I've got to know how to do that werewolf makeup or, you know, God forbid, could you imagine if you could go into school with Planet of the Apes makeup? When we were kids, that was the standard of, of amazement that would, that couldn't be, uh, couldn't be surpassed. And so we thought, well, we'll get into comics, we'll become makeup guys, somehow work in film and do all of this stuff. And then slowly but surely I realized, well, you know what, I probably should, you know, keep working on my drawings and, and see where everything else fits in. And we were fortunate enough in our neighborhood, our high school, uh, which is called George Vanier in, in North York, uh, at the time was the leading school for a vocational arts program, which was designed to bring in kids who had uh, above average art ability and be a funnel school to get them to go to what the time was called OCA or OCAD U and, and then other, other art institutes throughout the country. But that was the main objective of that school, get kids into uh, OCA. So and did you, did you go to OCAD then? Yes, I did. Okay. How was that? What was that experience like? There's a lot of people on this podcast who are like, oh, I didn't really like art school. I dropped out of the, after the first year or it wasn't yeah. really what I thought it was going to be. What was your experience? Well, I had a weird experience in that I, um, I didn't make that choice initially. I initially said I wanted to be an animator and went to Sheridan and I spent a year at Sheridan studying animated film. And I thought that's going to be it and it's going to be great until I realized that drawing cartoons and learning how to animate films are two entirely different things. And you, it requires an individual of a certain, um, uh, temperament. And I'm a bit of a jumpy fellow and I really felt I need to get results quicker. And after several months of studying animated film, I just can't devote myself to years on one project. I want to do some drawings and know at the end of the day or the end of the week, they're completed. And, uh, at the end of the year, I decided that's it. I'm going to go into, uh, and transfer to, uh, to OCA and, and I made the move and I enjoyed it. Uh, albeit there was some unforeseen, uh, family issues that occurred that, uh, stopped me my uh, college career after a couple of years and uh and then I decided that that's it I'm going to travel the world and and I moved to the Middle East wow <laughs> so can I ask and don't tell me if, if you want this to remain private but can I ask what those issues were and like what what ended up changing oh the family just yeah family just exploded uh, mm -hmm. uh my uh, parental divorce nightmare and and all kinds of uh you know unpalatable uh uh uh, episodes occurred that were really, really, uh, uh, 
they, they weren't conducive to learning how to master your art skills. Let's, right, let's right. put it that way. Yeah. And they, they didn't subside for years. And then so eventually I said, I can't, uh, I'll, I'll resume my education at another time. Well, and it also like, it's really distracting, but it also maybe calls into question like who's going to pay for your schooling type thing. And, like, oh yeah, the, well, there was, not, yeah, there was none of that. Yeah. Was, there was, you know, you know, me with summer jobs. Right. And I, like, I've never not worked. I, I was, you know, the, our dad was cool and he was like, oh, you got to work. And then we worked for him when we were little kids. And, you know, and, and I've probably been working since I was like 10 years old. So what were some of the like weird summer jobs you had putting yourself? Uh, I've been, I've had a gazillion summer jobs. Uh, my brother and I, and a couple of our friends for years, we worked on a paving crew for Miller Paving. We've, we may, uh, dear listeners, we may have indeed paved your residential street. <laughs> so uh, think about it. That's, that's not just black stuff out there. That, that might be the, the hard work of a cartoonist in front of your house. And uh, we really enjoyed paving roads. That was a lot of fun. I, I planted trees for a couple of summers uh, in northern Canada, which is the most grueling, uh, backbreaking thing that uh, anyone should ever be forced to do. But I do recommend it mm-hmm. if you've never tried it, if you want to test your metal. Um, I worked at Wonderland for a couple of summers as well, uh, uh, drawing, uh, portraits and caricatures for the, uh, the, 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 the public who liked that sort of thing. And that was, uh, that was heaps of fun. Worked at Massey Hall as an usher for, uh, for a long time. That was like all through high school. Virtually everyone I knew at one point all worked at Massey Hall, which was, uh, you know, as far as uh, I'm concerned, uh, that's the place to go for, for good music. So tell me about your experience in the Middle East. Why did you choose there to go? I've always, you know, uh, being a political head, I've always liked places that were very much in the news from an early age. I mean, I was like, what kind of nerd am I? I at, at like, you know, barely able to walk. And I remember watching like the Watergate trials and, uh, and, and things of this nature. And, and every night on the news, like what's going on in Vietnam and, and what's, oh, oh my God, Israel's in another war. What, what is this stuff all about? So all through school, I was a rabid consumer of evening news plus the newspapers. And I developed passion for, uh, you know, a lot of areas in the world that were hotspots and that were also, you know, culturally important. And I knew I, I, I'm not Jewish, but a lot of my friends growing up are Jewish and they'd always come home from Israel and tell me their stories. And I, geez, that sounds fantastic. I've got to go there. And, uh, as soon as uh, the opportunity arose, I, uh, I you know, saved some bread and, and went to Israel and worked on a kibbutz, and it was fantastic. That's awesome. Like, I'm a birthright kid. So when I was, like, 23, uh, I went uh, to birthright in 2006. It's the free trip that uh, young Jews of a certain age get to take to Israel to sort of connect or cool. reconnect with their heritage. It was really, really fun. Uh, it's, it was sort of like club med at night and sort of a tour group history lesson during the day. Uh, I distinctly remember them encouraging you to marry an Israeli so that birthright would pay for your wedding if it ever, (laughs) if it ever worked out. And, uh, they really wanted you to like make Iliyah and move to Israel. That was like a great mitzvah that you could do. Sure. So it was really fun. There was a little bit of indoctrination and, and being the, you know, dude in journalism school that I was, cause I went to Ryerson, I kept thinking like, they're not really showing me everything. Like I'm going to get behind birthright. I'm going to get behind the scenes. That was sort of my mission. But then when I was there, I like really connected with Israel and, and, and the place and the people and that sort of thing. So 
I kind of got sucked in a little bit. I remember playing, they had us play like, you know, pretend, you know, pair up with an Israeli soldier and pretend you're raising kids. And you have to decide if you want to live in America and what it's like raising kids in America and what it's like raising kids in Israel. So we were like literally playing house, sort of comparing mm. what the different lifestyles would be if we were to move to Israel or move to America. So it was it was cool, but also like you could sort of see the direction that they were pointing you towards. Let, let's just say oh, yeah. that, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. They, they're... they're uh, uh, Particularly, uh, you know, maybe not now so much because Israel's pretty full. Right. But uh, maybe when you were there and certainly when I was there, there was still, you know, in their their eyes, in the Israeli government's eyes, like, oh, okay, we need to we needed to fill up some of this, uh, some of these neighborhoods and often controversially. And uh, and I'm a I'm very much a uh, I I'm a love and peace fella, like ever like like all sides. Right. And I can see I got friends in, uh, who were Israelis. I had friends who were Palestinians, and and I could hear their arguments. And I I was uh, let's just say. Uh, sympathetic to all, right. but boy, what a country, what a beautiful country. And I tell folks all the time, like, don't, don't be shooed away from the concept of going to this place because of what you read in the news. A lot of times you go there and you go, well, well, well this is, this is a gorgeous place filled with lovely, peace loving, wonderfully cultural, beautiful folks on all sides. And unfortunately, a handful of numbskulls who continue to drive uh, the the problems, and uh, and I don't. That's unfortunate because it's awesome, right? Like everyone is sort of like, oh, are you going to be safe there? And and I found like, you know, there's a little bit of a security presence, but it's nothing, you know, out of the ordinary that I could see. And it's sure. a, it's it was a great place to be. I mean, I got to be on a kibbutz for maybe a few days, but you you were living on a kibbutz. So what was that like for you? Oh boy, just amazing. We uh, I lived in a. a a place called Nevayam, which was uh, this little um, a crusader town called Atlit, uh, right right outside of there, in between Caesarea and Haifa, north of Tel Aviv, right on the coast. I mean, what a dream! Nice. Uh, you just uh, what we did was we operated a, a water park for Israeli tourists right on the water. That's awesome. So with a big giant water slide. So that was my job every day to me and a, a South African guy and a guy from Liverpool, and we uh, and we just went and kept the park clean and operated the slides, and we had all kinds of adventures. the The crazy part was in the local town were this uh, camps of guys who had uh, migrated there from uh, other countries like uh, Algeria and Morocco and there was a gang of local hoods and they uh, they were uh, you know transitory fellas so they they weren't I don't know their citizenship concept was kind of vague like so they, they weren't in the they were basically guys who should be in the army at that age but weren't so all they were was the local uh, you know assassins and hoodlums and they would in the middle of the night like burn down the cotton fields or kill the local kibbutzniks uh, animals and then they'd come into the uh, the water park they'd by cutting holes in the fence terrorizing some of the employees Whoa. and i got into a, a fight with about eight guys on the top of a water slide when with you know, my job was to have two slides and let kids go on each side uh, one at a time and they'd come bursting through like you know 19 year old hoodlum guys 
and smacking all these poor Israeli kids in the head as they, like eight of them would rush up the stairs and I'm up like 200 feet in the air wow. and, <laughs> and then knock all the kids out of the way. And they'd always be for coming from behind me. And then a bunch of guys would knock me down and all dive down the slide at the same time. Whoa. And they did this to me about three times. And, and the last time I was waiting for them and I, I held fast, uh, Aaron, I didn't let them go. And the guys, uh, what their leader guy tried to slap me for it. And then I got into a big fist fight with him on the top of a water slide and gave it to the guy. And amazingly, they backed down. You know what? Because when they see the fury of a cartoonist who's been wronged, they learned, uh, they learned a valuable lesson there. And, wow. and, uh, and they could have easily grabbed me and thrown me off the thing. And uh, Yeah, don't step back too far. Yeah. you're going down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I did make my, uh, my great... Uh, um, you know, Marvel comics escape by diving headfirst down the slide and going to get the cops and everything. So that's, wow, that's its own comic. Strip. It is its own comic. Yeah. And I'm just still to this day amazed that like, why did these guys not beat the Dickens out of me is, uh, is amazing. But I think, you know, uh, they pushed me, uh, into a corner and, and I had, I basically, I thought I'm going to die anyway, so I'm not going to, you know, roll up in a, in a ball and I'm going to teach these guys what, what, uh, you know, Scottish kids are all about. So were you drawing the whole time you were there as well? Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, as much as I could, uh, I, I would go through fits and starts of, you know, sketching local people, uh, drawing in the market, doing caricatures. But, you know, an intelligent person at the time would have said, I'm going to document all of this and I'm just going to do nothing but draw all day long. But you're, you know, you're a young person and you're traveling the, traveling the world. And not to mention it is, you know, 38 degrees every day. Right. And you're just boiling and you're, all you want to do is get in the water as much as you can. And, yeah. uh, as it was, I got, uh, uh, heat, very bad heat stroke and spent quite a bit of time in the hospital there on death's door. And it was the worst experience of my life, hands down. Wow. You wow. Know. Yeah. Like not all of us can be Joe Sacco. Like you can't. That's right. Can't just, yeah. like, you know, draw everybody and have like a whole graphic novel. By well, I think if it. you go there with that intention, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's no problem. I mean, I, I was there to go, oh, this is amazing. I'm just going to travel and see groovy stuff. And, uh, as, um, as a more mature individual, I would go there and love to document, uh, the world around there. And Joe Sacco, boy, these, he's the, he's the gold standard, right? Totally. Totally. So how did you get into actually cartooning for a living? Like what was your first gig? Was it after this? Like how, what brought yeah, you? Yeah, I, like, I bounced around for a few years, uh, uh, living overseas. I mean, I left Israel and then moved to, uh, to Britain because my family's from Glasgow and, and went and stayed there for, for quite a while. And then from there, uh, said, I got to get out of here. Britain was very depressed at this time in the 1980s and it was hard to find work. It was the Thatcher era. Yeah. And, um, Vendetta comes from that era. Yeah, the, correct. <laughs> and, uh, um, so I hightailed it to, uh, I had a friend from my kibbutz who lived in Liverpool, this, uh, nice lady named Jackie and, and went and stayed with her family for about a half a year in, in Liverpool. And just, you know, I, I never failed to tell this story, which is, uh, that, uh, uh, they, they lived there with their, their, in this building right on the Mersey river. And they had a cousin, uh, famous cousin for Liverpool guy, uh, that you would know named, uh, uh, first name, Paul, second name McCartney. Whoa. And, uh, so, uh, 
it was New Year's Eve, and I remember uh, we went out to get uh, to get pie-eyed at the local pub, and not knowing whether she'd always say, "Oh, I never know if he's coming or not, if he's going to come for for New Year's or, or not," and and so we hightailed it back from the pub to the house just to make it there for twelve to see what was going on. And sure enough, there he is. He's coming outside. And we they all went outside to, to sing songs at midnight, and uh, somehow I found myself uh, holding hands with. Uh, with uh, Paul and Linda and everybody was in a circle. It was their family party. So it was about 15 people and I'm living at the house. So I'm like, kind of like, you know, the, you know, the resident, you know, the Canadian. And, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and then they would say, sang old Lang Syne. And, and, and then it was the weirdest thing. Like every you're looking around, everybody's singing and most folks can kind of mangle old Lang Syne, but you know, right beside me in my ear is that unmistakable, you know, perfect pitch, beetle voice uh would, and of course he knows all the words perfectly and he's you know keeping time and and uh and he's got the biggest grin on his face and he's got his arm around me and what a lovely guy and and then uh everybody was uh, jumping up and down singing these weird local ditties that i didn't know what they were and it involved one of their gang leaping into the middle of the circle and bending over and slapping his ass. And the whole gag was as he's singing this tune and slapping his ass, all of us rushing in and booting him in the ass in unison (laughs) and then go back out in the circle and then back in and boot him in the ass again. And I'm looking at beside me, the guy I'm holding hands with McCartney and he's looking at me and he's just saying, isn't this the greatest thing we've ever done? This is unbelievable. And I'm like, yeah, 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 this is the greatest moment ever. And you basically danced like the Liverpool horror. I danced the Liverpool horror with, uh, with Maka, you know, and, uh, and then we hung out after and what a cool guy and he was partying and then, you know, drinking and smoking and having a lot of fun. What'd you guys talk about? Just like, uh, just, you know, you know, where are you from and what's your name? And all right, man, you know, it's great. And I'm going to play, you want another drink and let's play a song. And, and he's on the piano all night and and yeah, it was, it was a legendary night that I will, uh. I will never forget, and uh, I have been lucky to meet some some freaks in my day. That's but you sure. can't be like, let me draw you. Like, that oh boy, be wouldn't thing. that have been great? Well, <laughs> let's just let's just say, Aaron. I think at that point there'd been a lot of alcohol consumed, <laughs> and I was thinking, I'm barely holding on to this this chair that I'm sitting in. It was a, I was a bit ashamed of myself the next day. Like, oh no, I get excited. You know, you have, you know, 20 pints of beer with, you know, English people. They, right, they, right. They, they can drink, right? Totally. Yeah, totally. And, yeah. So you're traveling. I mean, when I was in journalism school, they always told us, uh, you know, what are you doing in journalism school? You know, you should be traveling the world and getting experiences. That's how the best journalists are yep. made and that yep. sort of thing. It's probably the same for editorial cartoonists, they, they, right? Yeah. Well, a lot of a lot of people who get into that, yeah, they're, they're definitely at that college age, everybody's moving around the planet. Right. And in, in my case, I ended up there. And then I came, briefly came back to Canada. Then I got a job offer in Cuba, which is another scenario, another place that anyone who's, who likes journalism or likes, uh, editorial cartooning or follow the news or history in general would find a, a compelling place to move to. And in this case, it was a tourism job We're in running a hotel for a Canadian tour company. I said, you're damn right. I'll take that job. And went down with this, uh, groovy, uh, lady from Quebec named Michelle. And we, uh, we rocked Cuba for, for years. And, uh, I, I became very much integrated with that culture down there. And it was at that point that I really, uh, said, I, you know, I've got to re-embrace, uh, uh, drawing and, and would draw the, uh, the, the tourists as they'd come down and didn't have a design per se on like a, a doing a comic at that time or anything. It was just, I got to practice drawing people and drawing scenarios. 
and it uh, it was easy to do because the, the the wealth of people that you would see were were or the characters were were endless. In addition to that, they have such a vibrant and exciting uh, cartooning culture in Cuba. Like every town has their little paper. And their little paper is consumed to this day by all the citizens. And every, every single paper will have, they will have papers that have news with a comic supplement in it, or they'll have just direct humor, uh, publications, uh, things like Meleito and uh, DDT and things like this with all these artists from around Cuba that I know, and I've become good friends with all of them. And they're uh, wonderfully vibrant, exciting. The, this is an unexplored world for a lot of Canadians. They have no idea that cartooning culture in other countries, whether it's in the Caribbean, Latin America, Africa, uh, Asia, or the, I shouldn't say it, I would think. There's a lot of exposure from Asian well, cartooning, stuff, yeah. uh, but at the, the at the local level, when it's things to do with the with society, uh, you know, this is an important thing that's lost its luster in Canada. The the editorial cartoon and the cartoon that uh, reflects the society that we live in. So in Cuba, like you know, it's it's a communist country. So how is cartooning? How is editorial cartooning be able to pull off? Because you can't criticize the leadership there, right? That's the funny angle. That's okay. that's that's the well. No, you can make an entire fantastic living out of criticizing the the, the imperialists and the capitalists, uh, and okay. that's how they do it, right? They okay. they're allowed to critique their own society, but not the political leaders, which is a is a real shame. It's just. It's, it's sad and a bit ridiculous that you, you know, who like you've got the best fodder of all time with the Castro brothers. These guys are, are fantastic to draw and their foibles are, are, are legendary as we've known from so many great cartoonists from around the world who were able to draw these guys. The local guys not being able to do it was unfortunate, but what they do have, what they really are masters at is finding ways to slip subtle references in to their cartoons uh, that only uh, educated and savvy reader would know is going on. And this is something that goes back to to Europe, to the Soviet days, to any of the Eastern Bloc countries, whenever you would have a critique of the the leader or the the system, uh, you would have to have your own certain language. It's almost like the weird cryptic symbols of of prison culture or whatever. Whenever people are repressed, they have to find a way to, to get their point across. They have to. And that's what makes... Uh, this other branch of cartooning uh, that's different from the comic world, so uh, so vital. We're used to in Canada being, uh, you know, we're we're citizens in this fairly uh, you know homogenous, happy society where we don't have a lot of pressure and uh, and people look at Trudeau, oh he's a monster, and we like you know lighten up people. You don't you know look around the world. Like, there's a lot of really rough places to live where folks criticizing their culture can, can, can topple governments and change the way things get done. Uh, it's not re doesn't often happen that way here because people are pretty happy, albeit south of the border right now, folks aren't that happy with the way things are going, uh, justifiably so. But, uh, uh, cartooning in, in the third world, man, they, they, uh, it, it is really, really vital, important stuff. And, and, uh, I think as, 
in our uh, uh, profession and in, in, in my capacity as uh, being lucky enough to represent people at the, uh, with the Association of Canadian Cartoonists, every country has an association similar to ours. Wow. And what we do uh, often is work with different organizations uh, to try and help cartoonists who are in peril. And uh, we have some sister organizations in the United States and, and in Europe who are actively uh, seeking out situations where cartoonists are be like our, we have a, recently, we were at a, a uh, conference in Sacramento and our friend Zunar was there. And Zunar uh, is, is a, a friend from Southeast Asia who has, you know, constantly been under threat of, you're going to prison for 50 years for your cartoons. Yeah, because you got to be careful what you draw, basically. You absolutely have to. And yeah. in his case, he's like, no, I'm going to portray the first lady as this crazy person who, uh, you know, uh, abuses, uh, you know, the, the department stores and the, the nutty husband who, who's got a billion dollars in his bank account. And then you'll have the, the cartoonist in Turkey who are, you know, very actively, uh, hoping to, to point the finger at, uh, Erdogan and his, uh, his fellow miscreants and say, listen, your behavior is unacceptable. And cartoonists there, are, you know, get their hands broken and then end up in jail or, or worse, they disappear. They, they, they driven up into the mountains to never be seen again. Cartoonists and journalists, as you know, uh, the, this was, this past year was a dreadful one. Yeah. It's globally. The, it's, it's the most journalists that have been killed in, in a very, very long time. Oh, it's just, it's absolutely unacceptable. And, uh, virtually everyone I know, and this is another area that's a little bit different from folks who do comic books. Uh, most comic book guys and girls are under siege from, uh, fans mm -hmm. who just, who can maybe get a bit too much like, okay, all right, take it easy, Mr. Or Mrs. Fan. Right. Uh, and that's usually what is, what can drive you crazy, but you don't actively have people putting, you know, uh, bombs together to blow you up and, and show up at your house looking to, you know, hit you with a club or, or hate mail or, or, or whatever. And every single cartoonist I know, uh, at the very least, they get active, massive amounts of, of hate mail or phone threats well, all the time. Just look at the Charlie Hebdo massacre. Like we just yes. had the anniversary, right? In Correct. January. And like, that's, that's the greatest example of It is the greatest saying. example. It's, it was, just, it was just a horrible, horrible scenario. And that's three, uh, so 15, you know, 2015. And, and, uh, you know, when it happened, it was, it was so, so sad for a variety of reasons. And the, the, right at the top, which I always find odd is that most people around the world don't know what Charlie Hebdo is. Right. They don't know it. They've never read it. If this hadn't have happened, they would have had no clue. Uh, it, it is something for, it's not, it, it clearly is not a magazine, not a publication for everybody. It, for guys like me that grew up with underground comics, it's a complete sensible publication. Right. It's risque. It's really naughty. And it's for a certain ilk of comic cartoon fan who likes their humor like that. And it doesn't, it's not tailored for, uh, for, uh, you know, Joe Q public, but what, and you probably noticed this. 
the French are fantastic for their savvy and their sophistication with 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 the cartoon arts. They're the sharpest like lampoonists I've ever seen. It's just unbelievable. But the average person there, and you know it when you go to their bookstores, you go, you go to their humor section and their their uh, comic section, the bandesine section. Oh my God, there's like three thousand titles here. Right, right, and all different styles. You name it. They don't even care about superheroes. It's all these different kinds of things, like Asterix, Tintin, absolutely everything, absolutely. So they, from an early age, they're they're really educated, and they they know their stuff. They're wise and consumers for the comic arts. So something like Charlie Hebdo to them was like, okay, maybe it's my thing, or maybe not my thing. But they were like, well proud of it and it's a real was an important voice and and they've got a long vibrant history of criticizing power and that's the what was the essence of these cartoons that were in uh the publication is they were like sorry you know what you know whether you're a politician or whether you're a political leader whether you're a religious leader whether you're a community leader we reserve the right to critique you as much as we feel is required and in, in, with their dramatic styles, the variety of artists that they had, they were, they're powerful and punchy and often really offensive to people. And, and, but I, I say that in that it is not like a time magazine on every street corner around the world where everybody's exposed to it and everybody read it. It, the, the reaction that came was so disproportionate to the, to the, uh, the supposed offense is just astronomically sinful in my books, you know, killing cartoonists for doing risque cartoons. It's just abominable. You know, we, we should as a society always be able to, with the arts, know how far we can go and how far we can go is, 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 is basically obviously up to the editor of the various publications. Right. But it also is, you know, what are the demands of the readers who, uh, who are buying the publication? And if you've got a sophisticated, uh, readership, they, that's what they demand. They like their underground style cartoons. Right. And, uh, and it, I would love it if in Canada we would have something like this and hello, potential investors out there, please make something happen. We would love to have this type of publication. Uh, I certainly would. I've always, uh, been drawn to that sort of stuff. Well, I think, I think the thing, I mean, the thing that happened in Canada, like spy was probably, you know, the latest example. And that was in like the eighties with, with the, you know, Graydon Carter and that sort of thing. Yes. Yeah. And we, we, we really, you know, I just, I'm just hoping that some crazy uh, philanthropist out there decides, you know, I'm dying soon. I've got 10 million. I want to, I, you know, I love, I love the comic arts and, whoosh, and, and splash some money somewhere and get a publication going. We have in the United States, um, I guess the closest thing to what is going on with the, with the Charlie Hebdo guys is the nib. And the Nib, there's a, a cartoonist named Matt Bores who started the Nib a few years ago. Bors, yeah. And he's got a wealth of fantastic cartoonists like Jen Sorensen, who just amazing cartoonists who, who contribute to this. And they have now gone from just being on a, a digital platform to uh, having a print issue as well. And uh, I'm very, very impressed with that. Uh, hoping that uh, the day comes where in Canada, we've got some kind of alternative, whether, whether it's a, uh, you know, a quarterly or an annual or something like that. As the editorial cartoonist, we used to have a thing called Portfolio, which was the year's uh, 
annual collection of the best uh, editorial cartoons. And we used to all get our stuff published in that uh, year after year. But we haven't done that for the last few years as a reflection of uh, the crazy state of the the newspaper business that we're in. Right. Uh, we we're really looking for some reinvention in that department. Totally. I mean, I think that like, you know, Canada likes to pretend that it's free, but there's a lot of concern about not offending people and keeping things a little more bland and that sort of thing. What what has your experience been of the temperament of like Canadian editorial when you're when you're drawing uh, editorial cartoons mm. uh, in Canada versus like other countries and you know the French as we were as we were saying well holy cat well you know we've got the two obviously the the, the two divisions in our country right. like the language uh, the in Quebec they have a much more vibrant uh, drawing culture for newspapers than we do mm-hmm. the history is is as long as it is uh, in, in, in English Canada but to this date there's always consistently uh, more active professionals working uh, in newspapers there and in magazines than there are across the rest of Canada so they uh, much like their their brothers and sisters in France they they've got a little bit more of a understanding and a desire to enjoy lampooning. Uh, you may have seen the um, they have their uh, Radio Canada their r- annual New Year's Eve uh, parody show with Justin Trudeau. Right, uh, right, did yeah. you see that thing the other yeah, day with yeah, him getting yeah. smoking pot? Yeah, the, yeah. They, they eat it up. They just they absolutely love it. And uh, one of our uh, uh, very esteemed. Uh, cartoonists has a, a show called La Flaque and, uh, and it, it's like a spitting image, a, a regular parody of what's going on in Quebec culture. They're, they're quite happy to, to push the, 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 the news and the, the news envelope as aggressively as they can in the, in the French world here in Canada. But across the rest of the country, it, uh, it really depends on what paper you're working for. I don't have a staff job for a paper. Uh, there's very few staff cartoonists right now. Most folks are just on contract and you are at the mercy now of the, the readership often. And if you offend too many people, uh, they get the, the, the readers will send in, Oh, I don't like this fellow. And uh, this is unacceptable. And I'm going to cancel my subscription. Usually that's a common thing that the editors and the publishers are used to. And they'll just go, okay, whatever, no problem. But if it builds up to be too much of a scenario, they may lean on the cartoonist and say, oh, okay, I think you've got to, you've got to tone it down. Mm-hmm. Our, our friend Aislinn in Montreal from the Gazette has always been the legendary push it guy and been able to get away with a lot because he also came up from the, the late sixties till today, still drawing and is a rock star. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the older cartoonists are like that. They're, they're rock stars. They, they're from an era when they were getting very generously paid and could walk down the street. Everybody knew who they were. And the, the, the people in our generation, uh, are a little bit more of, uh, you know, not as commonly known. We're not going to walk down the street and have people high-fiving you. Hey, it's the local cartoonist. It doesn't, <laughs> doesn't really happen. And, uh, yeah, I think Chip Zdarsky was the last, 
guy, I think, for the National yeah. Post to build a sort of cult of personality. Well, he looks his, like a movie star. Well, That's why yeah. you look at him, you go, well, what show is that guy on? Yeah. He's got that great angular face and, yeah. and he's funny as hell. So uh, it's not a surprise that, uh, that and, and also I think in a lot of ways, uh, comic book artists in my lifetime have really taken over in Canada, certainly as the, uh, the, the, the comic arts superstars right. away from people who used to work for the newspapers. Because mm-hmm. the newspaper at one point, you and everybody you know would have read a multitude of newspapers every single day. Yeah, certainly. But, I, but I'm but i more talking about his time in the National Post when, you know, people sort of waited for his column kind of thing. And that's the last dude that I kind of yeah. remember, yeah. you know, being the you know, cartoon journalists that everybody wanted to read. It's true. And he, and thanks to the National Post, which I don't always agree with the National yeah. Post on everything, but but one thing that they have stressed is a strong graphic approach mm-hmm. to their paper consistently. Always lots of art, lots of graphic, lots of drawings of this, that, the other thing. And and Chip is one of those cats that, uh, that you know, got a lot of people excited about uh, drawing and, uh, uh, and he's, um, you know, got his thumbs in a lot of pies and, mm. and this is what I think you need to do. And it's, it's what, it's how I've survived. I've had, uh, thumbs in a multitude of pies. Yeah. Let's talk about that. I mean, I wanted to get into, since you're, you know, one of the only editorial cartoonists that we've had on, how does it work? Like, what's the technique when you're drawing somebody? When do you, like, how do you get into caricature and, and how did that happen for you? And then how do you go about drawing a celebrity and that sort of thing? Mm, I think, well, every, every guy and girl who draws, uh, editorial cartooning all grew up liking editorial cartoons uh, without fail. I don't think anybody started to do it in their twenties and said, I've never seen this strange art form before. Everybody, right. everybody was collectively drawn to the, the they, they liked them. Uh, and you not just would be reading the papers and, and seeing all the fabulous caricature work done at an early age, but we'd be consuming mad. Everybody I, from my age, everybody read mad magazine. Everybody loved Mort Drucker and Jack Davis and guys like that. And, and, uh, Frank Frazetta, Another guy who people forget that he was also an excellent caricature artist and all the guys who would draw, uh, these terrific movie posters when everybody was, when all the posters were hand drawn at one point. Right. And so you'd be always studying caricature all, uh, all through school growing up. And then everybody, without fail, every single person all worked for their school newspaper. Everybody. And you would do drawings. And in my case, you know, go, oh, who are my favorite pop stars? And, oh, I got to do a drawing of, uh, you know, Cheap Trick or, well, you know, different bands that I liked. I, I got to learn how to draw that guy from Rush. And uh, and so all the way through school, I even, though I didn't go to Ryerson, your school, I drew for the Ryerson newspaper. Right. And, uh, and so all the way through until you're working as a professional, everybody would, you would just do it incrementally. You do your little steps up until you'd start getting the courage to submit stuff to, uh, different publications. And I remember like when I was a kid, I checked out like caricature books from the library and they would always tell you, like if they were trying to like distill caricature art into like a, a lesson or a textbook, they would always say it starts with like an exaggerated feature or something yeah. like that. But do you really intentionally think about like what 
feature you're going to exaggerate yes. when you start when you start a drawing? Sure. Yeah. Oh, okay. absolutely. And you know right away whether somebody's got a good face or a bad face. And you don't want to draw beautiful. No one wants to draw exceptionally beautiful people unless they're those beautiful people that have kind of peculiar beauty. Right. And then, uh, you know, really wide spaced eyes or something like that. You see face. That's all you do. Everyone I know is the same. You're studying people's faces constantly. Just I, I could, I'm always amazed. Everybody goes on the bus now, and, and they all want to just look at their phones. And I'm like, this is the greatest people place on the planet. You go to the subway, go on the bus, and I just sit there staring at folks, and and it's just the the best thing when you see someone like yourself. You're a difficult guy. You're a handsome guy. We you, guys like you are not that much fun to draw. <laughs> you. you like them, but the folks are a bit weird looking, and you're like, oh, thank God, you know. And like Jean Chrétien was the former prime minister. Everybody went bananas. Just a fantastic face to, to 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 doodle. But yeah, you would look at a at a prominent thing. Somebody, you've got to be able to nail all the components on a face right. for a likeness. If you're doing a lot of distortion, it shouldn't just be about big head, small body. And you know, make somebody's nose bigger. That's that's really not the essence of of good caricature. Good caricature involves some dedicated time to determine how much do you understand that person's face. Right, it's the proportion. You have to know it. You've got to be able to draw it from a multitude of angles. Uh, the, the in my opinion, the I think the greatest uh, caricature artist in history is a, a friend of ours, Philip Burke from the United States, who's drawn for years for Rolling Stone and Vanity Fair. He's the gold standard because not only is there, are his drawings the pretty much the best that have ever been, but it, he does gigantic oil paintings of caricature, which are the the, the likenesses every single time are so exact and, and with extreme levels of distortion. That you know, how does you go? How does he do that? So we have in if you're a painter, or drawer, any any of the of the arts, you you go. Who are the best people? And you try and figure out how did they do it, and try and learn from the masters. When I think like anatomy is important, like life drawing and that sort of you thing have too, to. right? You absolutely have to. It doesn't necessarily make you a great uh, cartoonist because there's a lot of people. I mean, I have a fairly simplistic cartoon style. That's different from when I do real caricature, right. but there are some great cartoonists who are really simple drawers, especially in the gag cartoon world. Some of the New Yorker people can do these simple cartoons. They're just gorgeous, and but there's no real uh, anatomy or, or or caricature opportunity there for uh, for making somebody look realistic. But if you can brew it down into a minimal amount of strokes and still make it look like somebody, well, you've achieved your goal. And that's right. really something that, that needs to be applauded. Good, strong graphic, uh, representation of someone's face. And you didn't over bake the pie, as I like to say, I love it. I, I'm always a bit uh, saddened when I see people who devote all of their time to studying. There's some very, very good caricature artists out there, particular, uh, in, in Europe who everyone flocks to. And I admire their skills. I think they're really, really very, very, uh, you know, remarkable dra draftsmen. But I, th you know, they'll spend hours on every little pore and every little hair. And, and I just think it's not, it's, you, you, you overbake that pie, man. So you, Pull it so, out of the oven. Yeah. So you, uh, you use it to like understand the proportion and that sort of thing, but don't like overdo it with yeah. every detail. Yeah. Bust it down, man. Try right. and, you know, and you know, you work often, you, you try and work that stuff out in your, uh, in your development, whether you know, in your roughs right. and, 
and get and and just keep stripping it down like you should be able to to knock something out that really works in your final that that has energy that doesn't look overdrawn and i know it from my own stuff the stuff that i know afterwards i got failure and it's it usually it's it's missing some fluid energy and it looks stiff and wooden. Uh, I'm sure most uh, uh, comic artists would tell you the same thing when they look at their art that they they know they didn't do very well. Right. It's because they'll over labor some stuff and it just mm, what's that's it's not going, man. So did you have a favorite person to draw or somebody that you always went back to or anything like that? Um, it. it uh, uh, you mean a, a figure, like a famous like a figure, person? Yeah, yeah. I know it's in well with the with the world of drawing the celebrity or the the politician. It's whatever the public gives you, right? So whoever's in power for the longest time, like you know, in in my career, Stephen Harper was the you know was around for a decade, so mm-hmm. I had to draw him a lot. Prior to him, and I, I didn't grow up. I wasn't old enough working to draw great guys like Pierre Trudeau uh, um, and and Mulrooney and dudes like that. I was I wasn't in the industry at that time, uh, but you're you hope that your your political figures are going to be dynamic and fun to draw. Uh, Justin Trudeau was a lot of fun to draw, even though he's a handsome guy. He's got an interesting face, and it's it's uh, and he does you know really fun goofy things sometimes that that make it you know worthwhile. He's got nice. a, he's got a personality that comes out. So how did you get your first pro, like professional gig like doing this sort of thing? My f- uh, I it was the the turn of the century was when I started getting published, and it was. Uh, reaching out to, uh, to Aislinn, to, to Terry Mosher at the Montreal Gazette. And it was my, uh, my former partner, uh, actually had contacted him and said, uh, you know, look at the, you know, uh, look at this guy, Wes, he's done these really scary pictures of George Bush. And, uh, you know, I think you should, uh, think about him. And out of the blue, the guy said, got me on the phone, said, uh, you know, Wes, I really love your stuff. And uh, what are you doing tomorrow? I'm, uh, he's like, I'm going to come into Toronto and take you out to lunch. Nice. So this was an, the, this was an enormous break for me uh, after years of doing art and working in studios and working on films to him coming, uh, like one of the legends of our industry, uh, being kind enough and, and he's so supportive to, uh, to newer and younger cartoonists come into town from Montreal, take me out to lunch and then give me a slot working at McLean's magazine. Wow. And so this was an enormous opportunity. And, uh, and this came from Aislinn directly? Directly. At the time he was, he's always worked uh, at the Montreal Gazette, but he was also, uh, at that point, uh, McLean's was a much smarter magazine in that day because they had a, uh, a regular comic uh, section uh, or cartoon section and uh, with uh, a couple of different artists working on it. And he selected me to be part of the team. So that's awesome. Oh, it was unbelievable. And this was George Bush one that you. Uh, no, with? this is W. 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 Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So cool. like the start of the, 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 the 20, the 2002 or, or 02 or 03, something like that. Right. Right. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. And then somehow, like through all your experience, you got 
to be the president of the Canadian Association yeah. Cartoonists yeah. or the Association. Yeah. Well, Terry Aislin, uh, uh, he said, uh, you know, Wes, you gotta, you gotta get involved in the association. He's like, just come, come and see and see what the other guys are up to. And then you, you know, we'll, we'll work you in. The Canadian and the American uh, sister organization, the American Association of Editorial Cartoonists uh, have been working together for, for decades now, you know, going back into the 1950s where every year you get together for various conventions, you meet all your colleagues who work for your various uh, newspapers and magazines across uh, all of North America and and then conversely from around the world. You meet folks from, you just can't even believe the weird countries, the people you would never have met otherwise, and they come out to these events and, and you see such a variety of drawers and great, astute, wonderfully clever political minds and people who understand the societies that they're in. And it's, uh, it's funny cause it's a complete, it's a different world. We all grow up drawing. Some people like to draw comic books. Some people like to draw superheroes, but all of us, I guess, have that similar thing as we look at our societies. We want to, we want to draw what's going on in the world around us. And when you get into a group like that, um, you're not going to get on with everybody, but most of the folks are cool and you have a lot of respect for them and they're usually quite welcoming. And when you're a younger, uh, artist, as I was, when I got into it, I'm like, oh my God, these legends are, are welcoming me. And, and, and it, it really, it, it literally changed my life. Why do you think they elected you president? And you've been president for like seven years. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Crazy. Uh, the, uh, I think as everybody else had, had had the job and they were all fed up. Right. They're like, we don't want to do this anymore. And, uh, it's a lot of work. You've got to, you know, you have to organize all the events. And in our case, we have like these big international conventions, but we also have regular meetings with our members. And, uh, what happened when I got involved was it used to exclusively be about editorial cartoonists uh, who draw for the papers and the various magazines. And then I said, this is just, uh, this is wrong. It's like, cause I also like to do, you know, I don't just draw these things. I, you know, I do, you know, kids books and I do illustrations for magazines and for advertising. And, uh, I like to talk to people who draw from all walks of life, every, every industry. And why would we as Canadians who like to draw be excluding anyone else or not excluding per se, but not, you know, welcoming them say, please, you know, please join. You're a Canadian cartoonist. We don't give a damn what you draw. Why don't you come and meet some other Canadians who also are cartoonists? And we, uh, we all agreed on that. Our board of directors agreed on it and we went and changed our name at the lawyer's office. And then since that point, uh, we've been welcoming folks who draw like New Yorker style gag cartoons and who also draw strips. And we've had, uh, you know, a variety of really prominent illustrators as well, who are part of our organization. We don't care. We just, you know, the, the industry and certainly the print world has been, you know, very, very, uh, damaged over the last decade. So that's when, you know, you have to circle the wagons to a degree, get together with like-minded folks and keep encouraging each other to, uh, to, to draw and cause people have abandoned the profession. Right. Which the jobs are sparse. Jobs are sparse and they're, they're absolutely folks have been given their walking papers and, and moved on and actually not just that they don't draw professionally, like they just don't draw at all. Right. They've been so discouraged by what's happened to the print world. What do you, like, I don't understand this sort of degrading of the creative industry where like people are sort of undercutting illustrators on Fiverr, like $5, you get a caricature <laughs> and that sort of thing. It's preposterous. Like, what, what happened to our society that like allows, you know, creative professions to be sort of thought of as 
easy. Like anyone can do this. So I'm not going to respect you or give you your rate in the same way that I would like a lawyer or a doctor or any of those professions. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what happened, but there seems to be like an inequality among oh, absolutely. creatives versus the rest of the jobs out there. Well, you can chart it with the uh, the progress of uh, of drawing software and clip art, and those two hand in hand have enabled you know a whole generation of people to get on their computers and feel. I think I can kind of do this stuff by a little bit of uh, copy and paste here and then maybe a little bit of jiggery-pokery with the Photoshop and, oh, hey, I've got an image that looks great and I'll just slap a word balloon on it and I'm like a great cartoonist. And it's just not the case. It's it's really, really silly. Also, you know, with uh, the powers that be at various publications saying, uh, uh, you know what, we could run a wire photo here for whatever that rate is from from the, from the AP or Getty and, and it'll, you know, cost us way less than having to make that cartoonist who down the hallway who was on staff get his, whatever his daily rate would be. And it's, it really is a, 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 a disrespectful scenario that's unfolded for not, and most of us who grew up in Toronto in the, in the, the art scene know your friends are cartoonists, painters, musicians, actors. Right. And we've all collectively had problems, but I writers think we're too. Yeah. Writers yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody in the, in, in the, in the creative arts uh, world. But I think the, the, the folks who've really, you know, seen things go down, uh, uh, the hardest or anybody, anything to do with print has just been, you know, uh, it's a, it's a massacre. And, uh, and we're, we're trying to say, okay, let's, let's put the brakes on with this thing. So is that the sort of thing that you talk about is like, are you, are you lobbying the newspapers? Are you talking about strategies, like how to move your stuff online and that kind of stuff? Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we absolutely do. And I think what more than anything, what I've, felt is the, is the proper way forward because th- th- there's been a million seminars, every convention, every right. get together, <laughs> every sitting in a pub, you name it, is a whole bunch of, you know, disgruntled cartoonists or writers or actors, whatever the creatives are sitting there going, well, this is, this is unreasonable. Uh, but in my mind, it's all an attitude scenario that it requires an understanding the, of the temporary nature of the entire globe, as soon as you recognize that, you know, everything is constantly in flux, everything's changing, the world is going to change, you've got to be adaptable. Uh, if you don't accept that as your your credo from day one, you're in trouble. You've just got to use that to reinforce a positive attitude and encourage people to keep doing what they're doing even if it collectively means that, oh, well, you know what? I might not be getting the paycheck that these guys did once upon a time when all the cartoonists were pulling in six figures. You can still get the work out there, like the people at the Nib. Other options are there and we have to keep looking for them. We can't just sit there and like moan because moaning is ridiculous. And it's okay to have another job like while yes. you're doing your passion, right? Like nobody's going to look down on you if you can't 
completely survive on cartooning, right? It's absolutely the case. That's why I do, uh, you know, children's books. And, yeah. and I'm, I'm fortunate to have a regular gig working for our national magazine, for Zoomer magazine, you know, and it's because our benefactor, Moses Neimer, just loves cartoons. Yeah. And that's the, you know, bless his heart. I, I hope that this continues till the, the end of time because it's, uh, it, it's important that you've got people that actually have deep pockets who say, you know what, we can do it. But Zoomer is one of the few magazines that actually, you know, sells copies. Right. You know, it's got a readership because it's... It's all it, for older It's people. all for people over 45. Yeah. So everybody over 45, it's, you know, a lot of your readers, uh, you know, who are in the comic book world, they go, what? For, over, <laughs> like, they just say, why would I read? But you know what? Uh, it's important to, that there's an... More than anything, it's for a particular audience people of a certain age and that's how, what those comics are tailored yeah, for. Yeah, because it used to be, so I, I want to give our readers or listeners a little bit of a background. It used to be the CARP magazine, I think, right? Like it used to be like the magazine for well, retirees. Well, yeah, no, they're two, yeah, they're, but okay. they're two, they're two separate entities. The, the, the CARP is, uh, is, is owned by the same people, right. but it's uh, like, the, yeah, they're, 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 they're two separate things. Uh, I like to think of Zoomer magazine as a lifestyle magazine. It's kind of like the, I don't know, the people magazine yeah, the of, hip of, of Canada. Sort of yeah. Thing. Cause Moses was the guy that invented city TV and much music right. and Bravo and fashion television and all that stuff. And, uh, and I think when all of that stopped, uh, he uh, said, you know, I'm going to, there's a whole untapped market for people of, you know, folks in the sixties and seventies who are now, oh my God, you know, it's, you know, 2019, everybody's, you know, you know, we're not kids anymore. And they and will buy magazines. They will we buy magazines. Saying. Yeah. And there's still the people that buy magazines, <laughs> yeah, exactly. and that, uh, you know, that are like, you know, 50 years old and, and, you know, that actually buy comic books, but also buy magazines and still buy newspapers and still have subscriptions and things. Right. Right. And they like to look at, uh, at, at cartoons too. And, uh, so that's, you know, a different type of cartoon that, it's not the risque underground stuff that I, you know, would love to be working on, you know, seven days a week, but I'm super happy to do it. And, and any opportunity when the same with all these people that, that hire me to, you know, do their children's books. I'm like, oh, okay, dokie. Let's, you know, I'm, I'm happy to give it a shot. And so tell me, so tell me about Profit of Zoom. Cause that's the regular strip you do. Yes featuring Moses Neimer. Yeah, right? it's a fictionalized version of the prophet, of uh, the prophet Moses. Yeah. And essentially every issue is we'll, uh, we'll, I'll get together with, uh, with Moses. He's, he's a really entertaining fellow and go down to the offices at the, the Zoomerplex in, uh, in Liberty Village and sit there and chat about what are the affairs of the day? Like what are, what are people talking about older folks? And it's a combination of, is there a big story today, like in the news that needs to filter into the, the the magazine, or is it an issue-driven thing that's a constant factor for people of a certain age? And uh, whether it's you know we've done a lot of believe it or not uh, uh, issues on the marijuana uh, scenario that's unfolded for Canadians yeah. over the past year, and they'd be involved in that because like medical marijuana is like going to be like a viable treatment. Like absolutely, Shoppers Drug Mart is getting into that's right. prescribing. It's everywhere. <laughs> it's every can't stop it now. Exactly. Yeah, it's absolutely everywhere. And they, um, you know, guys like him, he's been uh, you know a big. Uh, um, spokesperson for this for a long time because uh, Moses also has a thing called Idea City, which is the Canadian TED Talks. Right. And they're going on 20 years now and I've been a speaker at Idea City. Mm -hmm. uh, I had to do a, um, 
a slot right after the Charlie Hebdo massacre. Yeah, that was a huge thing for Holy you, right? Holy jumping. That was, it sure was. And, and he was great because he, uh, he said, you know, this is important. And he recognized, uh, you know, what a catastrophe this was. And he said, Wes, I want you to organize something, get together with Aislinn and you guys grab all of your buddies from around the world. And we got cartoonists, all some of the greats from across Canada, people from Europe, people from the United States, and they flew them all in. And then we, uh, we all collectively had slots on stage and they would come up and certain people give their, their, uh, their presentations. Uh, but what made that interesting and, and peculiar was we had, uh, we had these commando guys who he had hired. He was really worried. It was right after Charlie Hebdo. And, and he's like, uh, what's going to happen if some maniacs burst in here and gun down a bunch of you know, cartoonists on our stage? So we had the dudes give us training when we were, before Whoa. going on stage. And then they were like, don't worry, Wes, we will be right there at the side of the stage. And these guys with, you know, Uzis. And uh, it was, uh, it was really, really weird for, for cartoonists so to be So what kind of situation. training? Like dodging bullets? Oh yeah, they would say, <laughs> uh, okay, at that point, if the maniac come from here or they come from that direction, there uh Wes you dive to that part behind this thing and uh, Terry you dive to that part over there for that thing and, uh, and there's this main guy that they've got is this this really interesting character um uh I think he's originally Egyptian and he uh, he was in prison and he escaped from some kind of torture camp and then swam across the the, the Red Sea into Israel on a, and and then uh, started some organization that goes into all these countries, war zone countries, like Afghanistan and what have you, where girls have been abducted and turned into child brides. Whoa. And he goes in there and rescue them. He's rescued like, I don't know, hundreds of young girls from around the world who've been uh, sold into slavery. And that's, that's his awesome. thing. So he got hired to be the, the uh, you know, keep things under control guy when we did the Charlie Hebdo thing. And how did it go? It was wonderful. It was very powerful. I think it resonated with the crowd that was there, you know, the people that go to these events are, are, you know, a lot of bright folks, a lot, certainly a lot brighter than I am. And they, they really responded well to us talking about the freedom of uh, the press, which is, is, you know, something that we're adamant about. And you, no cartoonist should ever be, uh, have their life imperiled by what they've drawn. If you don't like it, that's great. You reserve the right to not like it. I've a lot of friends who do provocative cartoons, but there's, you say, I don't like it. And that should stop there. It shouldn't go beyond that. And these maniacs that, uh, that run around killing people for, for that is, is just preposterous. And there seems to be a chill going on, like, you know, with the U S like they're all about being proponents of free speech, but there's also this fake news thing. That's sort of a oh, weird it, chill. On it free is speech. very chilling. A, a well-documented scenario in, a few months back was a terrific Pittsburgh cartoonist named Rob Rogers. And he was fired by his new editor because his new editor was a lick spittle for Donald Trump. His new editor said, uh, no, I think you're a hateful man and you uh, every day you're coming up with these things about this wonderful president and, and uh, you know what, I think uh, we're going to stop running your cartoons and then maybe you'll go away. So they basically spiked his cartoon day after day after day after day after day until he got into a scenario of like, well, what's going to happen here? And they're like, well, you can kind of keep not getting published or kind of get lost. Oh, and he man. lost his job after, I don't know, 25 years. One of the most uh, esteemed cartoonists in, in America. Lovely guy. Very, very sweet. He gave us a big talk in Sacramento a few months ago on this. And, uh, and that's a, that, this is a, 
a, a very reasonable newspaper in a very reasonable, sensible city like Pittsburgh that responds to the arts like few cities in America. And they took a drastic uh, shift to the right with this new editor. And he's, an, in my opinion, a numbskull, you know. Uh, what do you think? Like, wh- how do we combat this sort of thing? Like, what? Like, with the censorship and the, you know, the con- constricting of opportunities and that sort of thing like this, what, how do we, how do we combat? Because, you know, everybody's talking about like social media and like the divisiveness of the country and that sort of thing. Like, mm-hmm. And as a notable cartoonist, you are like the symbol of that kind of, you know, right, left sort of divisiveness for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for, you know, for the most part, most cartoonists, not every cartoonist is a liberal uh, uh, or open-minded person, if I can say such a thing. Right. Some of the folks are, you know, fairly tight and square and conservative, uh, but they're rare. They are in the minority because essentially you're, it's not like you should be aligning yourself with a party per se. As right. a cartoonist, you should be prepared to kind of take a shot at who's ever in power. Right, right. That exactly. should be your objective first mm. and foremost. That being said, I think most cartoonists are, are fairly open-minded and skew a little bit on the the, the liberal side. The the really hard right cartoonists, I think, there are 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 crazy. There's some of them in the states that are are real nuts, and all, they'll portray Donald Trump as Superman and what have you. There's this guy I'm not going to even say his name. who just does these things that are just awful. You look at them and you think, how could anyone publish him? But they they do, and. Uh, the, the the collective thing that we have to understand, again, with the temporary nature of our world, we've got to be looking down the road. You cannot be sitting and freaking and responding to every nut bar thing that goes on, particularly with this this clown in the, in the, in the White House. You can't do it. You have to understand that if we look five years, we look 10 years, we have to be smooth and modulated and and incrementally keep presenting a message that's the right and positive message consistently going forward. Like this isn't the society we think is good for Canada, for America, for Europe, for wherever. And this is what we we have to do. And you've got to be able to knock who's ever in power. And I like to think of it as why shouldn't we kind of be the adults? Remember when you were a kid and you look at the school principal or the teacher and go, well, they're the adult. Like when we're kind of young and stupid and we got irrational because we're nine, but that's kind of the way society is to a degree right now right. With, with people across the political spectrum where folks are getting so emotional, they're acting, they're, they're being really reactionary to everything right. instead of like, okay, you know what? How about we, we do all take a deep breath and try and see things for what they are. Recognize that the majority of the people are pretty much like down the middle of the path. They want a better society. They want, you know, they want healthcare. They want a, a safe yeah. place to live. Whatever. And we're all kind of afraid, like, you yeah. know, acting out of fear. And you, you, as long as you push that fear thing, you know, it's just, it's, it's nonsense. Michael Moore, I thought did it perfectly in Bowling for Columbine when he, that whole essence of his, uh, of his, uh, his thesis was about, the system instilling fear in people and how effective that is. It, it's incredible for generating uh, money for all kinds of sources. And it puts people in a, a, a perpetual state of unease and they're, they'll be willing to do anything and follow anyone if they're feeling uneasy. I see it with my own family. I'll see it with my parents. And they're like, oh, I watched the news and somebody got I'm like, don't watch that junk, mm-hmm. you know, 
keep, you know, just there's lots of great stuff to watch. Don't sit there watching the evening news about somebody getting stabbed, right. you know, or a fire down the street or gangs. It's just like, it's nonsense. Right. You know, it's such a small part of our life and it doesn't, it's not the way the world is really working. Most people, most of the world is, is running quite well. You know, there's a lot of problems. There's mo- it's, we should all be way more concerned whether or not the world's going to be around and, and operating with clean air mm-hmm. down the road than worrying about whether there's going to be a, a bunch of gangbangers down the street who are going to burst in and murder your family. Right, right, right. That right, is right. not going to, ha- all likelihood is never going to happen. Right, right. You know. And it's crazy because like, like this sort of thing, I, I, I imagine sort of comes into some of the meetings that you guys do, you know, and the conferences, like you have to sort of discuss this because, because the, the readership is sort of, is sort of dictating, you know, who gets to draw and who doesn't and that sort of thing. Yeah. Like we were saying before. Um, but one of your conferences famously was in Havana and that's where yeah. your latest graphic novel takes place. Fidel and I, from when you lived in, in, uh, in Cuba, can you tell me a little bit about this graphic novel you're working on? Yeah. It's, it's pretty it's, exciting. It's been a labor of love of mine for, uh, for a few years now. And as anybody who knows me will tell you, cause I've been, t- you know, showing people pages for, mm-hmm. you know, for f- about five years, but, uh, working on a graphic novel and anybody out there who draws them knows the deal, uh, uh, often if you don't have a, uh, a contract for that book and you have other jobs, you've got to work on it on your spare time. So it's going to come along slowly, but eventually it'll see the light of day. Uh, and the stories are interesting because they're all the stories that are true of my weird adventures of the, you know, almost four years that I spent uh, living down in Cuba, running a hotel for a Canadian tour company as a young person. And it's just the the most bizarre place to have, to have lived because it was, I lived through the fall of the Berlin wall. So it was being the lone Canadian in this remote part of Cuba and being deeply uh, entrenched in, in their, uh, in their socialist lifestyle, uh, with where you're mixing socialist Cuba with, you know, capitalist tourism and trying to find a balance between the two. And, you are not a person that kind of comes in and out of the country as you would as a tourist. When you're there living there, it very quickly dawns on you, I, I'm really part of this scene. You are, so how do you handle it? You, you've got to really have your wits about you because uh, essentially everybody at that time who worked there was considered to be CIA. If you're Canadian, because there wasn't any Americans there, but if you're Canadian, you're thought of as, oh, it must be American clearly working for the CIA and all of my colleagues would go to their meetings with their local, uh, tourism jefe, the boss. In this case, it was, uh, this, this woman named Miriam and she would sit down and lecture them all on the perils of working and being friends with me because I would do things like offer them gum. And when Wes gives you this gum, pretend to take it, pretend to put it in your mouth, pretend to chew it, but Make sure you don't properly chew it. And when he's not looking, spit it out because Wes is CIA. And these, of course, this gum is poisoned by the CIA to turn you into a capitalist. What? What? And, and it, and he will work his spell on you with his evil gum. 
and you're that'll be the end of you and she would give them these sort of speeches and they'd all nod and like okay and then of course some of them were my buddies and they'd come and tell me like we'd have beers at night they go oh you man you can't believe what they told us today man this is unbelievable they, they say that you got the cia gum and and i'm like oh my god <laughs> this is this this wasn't true and it and it was uh, of course um you know uh a, a police state right. and, and certainly at the time it's 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 lessened to a degree now but at, the, at that time, everybody's followed. And uh, everywhere I went, every, I would always have a tail on me. My ceiling, there were the panels that would come out and I would have friends who worked in the security would tell me like, oh yeah, we saw you last night doing your, your thing with some girl. I'm like, what are you talking about? And I, oh yeah, they got the cameraman. I watched the videotapes. And, uh, and sure enough, you know, go up into the ceiling and there's this box filled with uh, video equipment and about a thousand cigarette butts and crushed beer cans. And these dudes would just sit above me, above my bed at night, hoping I was going to, you know, get up to some, uh, uh, hanky panky with a Cuban. Thus, they would have, you know, something to hang on one of their own people. See, and I would see, you know, folks I knew, like would, would uh, you know, frequently peak, uh, staff members and whatever disappear. They would, they would be imprisoned and uh, taken away just for hanging out with me. So how did you avoid disappearing yourself? Well, that's the funny thing. Like they're, they have to treat you well because you're bringing a lot of money into right. their region. So they got you, you know. They would always get upset with the scuba divers if they took me anywhere near the, the sharks and things like that because, you know, if anything happened to Wes, we might lose our contract. Don't, don't let him see the, see the shark. And, uh, and uh, so I had, to, I had to watch what was happening there. But I also had to watch my P's and Q's with the security people who I would eventually know. It's like the, the guy who rents the cars, he's a security guy and a secret police dude. And the guy, you know, who's got the, like the soft freezy thing, like, oh yeah, he's, he's clearly like a secret police guy. Wow. Uh, so I'd have to watch that. I made friends with these guys and we would play a little game, you know, and if they got to be kind of too much of a jerk, I'd uh, often, we would get them into compromising scenarios where we, they'd get, uh, we'd get them wasted and then we, they'd lose their job. So we take them out for all night, uh, all night booze up sessions and, uh, <laughs> and, but conversely I had, to, I couldn't push it too far. Cause if I, I pushed it too far, well, it wouldn't have taken nothing for them to plant drugs in my room and, or something. And it's interesting how you're wrestling with capitalist instincts and like the instinct in all people to achieve and progress in a communist country where everybody should be treated equally oh, yeah. and the same and that sort of thing. So there's always people doing like side hustles and, the, and that sort of thing. Oh too, yeah, right? there sure are. More so now, the side hustle thing now is is much more common in my day. Guys really had to be super careful right. because you'd, you know, you'd have, I had friends with a, they get caught with a dollar in their shoe and they'd go to jail. Whoa. You know, cause, uh, the Ameri the black market for American money then was, uh, was extreme. And, uh, and so it was very, very problematic. And I was, you know, completely integrated. I got married to a Cuban at the time. Wow. I was married to a Cuban for several years. And, and so I got to see everything on, on a firsthand basis. Of, but you did almost die while you were there, right? Uh, I, I almost, yeah, I, I was in a big, <laughs> I was in a big car crash uh, when I was there with our hotel manager. It was uh, this real nut uh, named Ugo. And Ugo was one of those guys that couldn't shut his mouth, just, just talked so much while he's driving that he would go down the street and and be cutting everybody off. And, and one day I was in the back seat with some, with another tour guide and, and he cut off this guy driving this old like Packard or DeSoto that, you know, Cuba's got all these great old cars everywhere. And he cut the guy off and 
both of our cars turned over multiple times in the middle of their, uh, their downtown area. And then we were, I was really lucky that, cause I didn't have a seatbelt on and, and I was just covered in broken glass and tons of little cuts and it kind of screwed up my neck. And, but the dudes came out of the other car, just poured blood shooting out of every place you could think of. And, and this, the driver of the other car was so upset and got a big, tire iron or a stick, I can't remember, and chased my hotel manager around this car like a, like a Three Stooges movie uh, for a while trying <laughs> to, Hill, trying right? to, yes, pure, pure <laughs> Benny Hill, trying to, trying to hit him with this, this, uh, I'll say it's a stick. And, uh, but the, the, the nutty part, and you can see it in this, uh, in this picture right here was these, uh, within, I'm not kidding, within two minutes, there was about a hundred people who were sitting around, you know, it's 35 degrees out, they're bored, they're hot. And they've got this incredible car crash right in front of their house. So there was a hundred people before you knew it. There's a kid selling peanuts, a guy playing guitar and, uh, this huge scene. People are laughing. They're loving watching this dude with blood shooting everywhere, running around a car, like a three stooges guy. And, uh, the, the tour agents that were with me, like, uh, we got to get you out of here. They were so upset because they thought if you get the Canadian killed, what's going to happen to our tourism program. Wow. And, uh, so they hustled me out of there pretty fast. That's amazing. Like it, it's all in your, your graphic novel, Fidel and I. Yes. But in the meantime, you got children's books coming out. You've got adult uh, illustrated books. Yeah, well. yeah. McIntyre Purcell, great, great uh, publishing house out of Halifax. What's nice about them is they, uh, they're really one of the nice publishers in Canada that push cartoonists' work. And when I mean cartoonists, I mean the, the, the people who do the, the editorial cartoons. Mike Deatter. Graham Mackay, wow. Dan Murphy, uh, some of the guys I consider to be the funniest and most uh, uh, sophisticated humorists in the country. Uh, they'll uh, they'll push books by these guys where they're not doing necessarily what they normally do without doing their daily editorial cartoons for the newspapers, but they're uh, they're doing books which reflect their local society. Mike Deatter doing th- stuff on all the different provinces of the Maritimes, Graham Mackay doing a book on all the, you know, the ups and downs and the weird stuff that happens if you, uh, you live in Hamilton, uh, Dan Murphy for life out in, uh, in the West coast and in, in British Columbia. And so they, they're, they're a good publishing house because, you know, in this era of not a lot of books getting published in the humor variety of, uh, in, in your bookstore, this publishing house is insisting upon it. And in our current era right now of, uh, of social mores changing, uh, uh, certainly, uh, you know, for, for a lot of folks who had a foot in the older camp, certainly in the cartoon world, they, we, we came up with this idea, like, why, why is there never, ever anything that has a sexual content in ever published in Canada anymore? If ever, you know, uh, the, they certainly are not unafraid to do it in, in Quebec, down in Cuba, geez, on the front page of, of their newspapers, they'll have cartoons where they'll explore sexual stuff. And I'm not talking raunchy sexual stuff where, you know, like Hustler magazine type of nonsense, but cartoons that discuss and aren't afraid to talk about the, the, the sexual habits of the people today. This was very common when I was young, certainly with the, like the Playboy cartoonists, there were so many of our greatest, historically greatest cartoonists all did things that were a bit more risque or ribald, uh, at one point, but now publishers have been shying away from this content for a long, long time for obvious reasons. The older comics, in my opinion, you know, aside from having great cartoonists, 
a lot of the ideas were just goofy. They're all very madman era stuff mm. where, where, where it was always at the, the jokes at the expense of the women and, and women being objectified in stupid and, and not, you know, nonsensical ways. Uh, we feel that the time is right now to have a book that talks about, you know, what, what's the average schmuck up to in Canada and this book called, uh, sex in a snowbank. And, uh, uh, we think we're going to be able to illustrate a lot of stuff that, uh, and I'll be happy to share some examples with you that are, are just show the, you know, the goofy side of being alive. Cause we're, uh, we're Northern people, you know, we're, but that doesn't, you know, you know, you often, and geez, from my experience down in Cuba, oh, the Latin lovers and it's hot and the Latin people, everyone wants to make love all the time. I'm thinking like, well, I don't think this is a bit of a global scenario as far right. as I can tell. People like to get it on, uh, a worldwide and there's a lot of goofy things that happen and a lot of weird uh, ideas certainly what's it like to be uh, 2019 and uh, and you know the stand-up comics are still doing a lot of it the movies are certainly you can watch the hangover or whatever people respond very well to to goofy you know stuff on the edge uh, when it comes to our, our, our habits as sexual creatures, uh, we haven't seen a good book or a good collection of this in a while. And that's what we aim to fix. Well, congratulations, Wes. I mean, the research has got to be very fun for that book. <laughs> it certainly is. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, yeah, so that's awesome. And then you've got this, 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 uh, hockey book. Keep your eye on the puck. Yeah, yeah. What is that? Is that for kids or families? It's, no, or? it's for yeah, it's for little ones. Okay. Uh, but we're a hockey culture, as everybody's aware of. Uh, there's a, a very nice, uh, sensible author named Dave Roth. I did that elevator book with him a, a couple of years ago, and he uh, wanted to do something uh, hockey related for a long time. And it's uh, about the the adventures of this of this puck that uh, gets shot out of the rink during a a game with a, a fictional. Uh, uh, you know, uh, pro hockey, uh, uh, tournament and, uh, it goes on an adventure across the country and, and I think kids are going to respond to it because we, we love hockey. I, I'll tell you right now, I love hockey. Uh, and if there's a uh, little kids out there that respond to hockey as much as I do, they're going to like this book when it comes out. So look so for that, that. That one's coming out when? That should be out this summer. Okay, cool. Yeah. And then Sex in a Snowbank, Fall 2019. Yeah, we've got to get it out before next Christmas. Uh, so that's uh, that's when I'm going to be uh, spending my hard-earned uh, hours on this summer. Yeah, because there's got to be snowbanks if you're, if you're reading the book, right? That's right. Yeah, it's, but uh, <laughs> yeah, there's going to be a lot of goofy content in that. So stay tuned. Nice. Well, it's so nice to have you, Wes. This has been an amazing conversation. And uh, we'll see you next time on Speech Bubble. All right, Aaron. Thanks, buddy. This has been Speech Bubble. See you in the future, friends. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network is hosted by me, Aaron Broverman, and features audio editing from Armin Zoberi. It has announcements by Craig Mayhem and Sean Ward, with graphical assistance by Brittany Tice.